I'm Nia Clark, and this is Dreams of Black Wall Street. This song was composed by Blind Joe. Raleigh State Penitentiary. The red bird, red bird, August fly. If July in a hot month, hot month, I hope I may die. I don't talk about it, about it. If you do, I'll cry. Don't talk about it, about it. If you do, I'll die. She drunk my whiskey, whiskey, then I drunk my wine. Next month. Must be a golden time. I don't talk about it. About it, if you do, I'll cry. Don't crowd around me. Around me, if you do, I'll die. My old missus, missus, the promise me. When she dies, that's gonna set me free. I don't talk about it. About it, if you do, I'll cry. Don't talk about it. About it, if you do, I'll die. I don't talk about it. About it, if you do, I'll cry. Don't talk about it. About it, if you do, I'll That song you just heard was recorded at the State Penitentiary in Raleigh, North Carolina by John Avery Lomax and Alan Lomax on December 19th of 1934. The inmate singing that song was a man by the name of Blind Joe, and it sounds like he had some backup from a few other inmates as well. If you listen to the introduction to this season, you might recall me mentioning the two Lomax men. John, a pioneering folklorist, and his son, Alan, an ethnomusicologist, known for his numerous field recordings of folk music of the 20th century. As I mentioned, that recording, you heard, was made in 1934. That was the year that the father and son launched an effort to expand the archives of recorded folk music at the Archive of the American Folk Song at the Library of Congress. This song is courtesy of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. What really strikes me about that song and other recordings by the Lomax men is that these are not famous superstars or musicians you're hearing, but you can really feel the raw emotion born from some of the more prevalent issues and problems of that era, particularly for African Americans, some of which we'll cover in this episode. audio is from a video recorded on January 6, 2021 at the U.S. Capitol in Washington, D.C., which at the time was being breached and attacked by mobs of people who disputed the results of the 2020 presidential election. That video was recorded and is owned by C-SPAN. 
Among those who watched the footage of that day's events broadcast on television and live-streamed online across the globe were many people who went from being in disbelief that such a thing could occur in America, the so-called beacon of the free world, to being utterly fearful that the pillars of American democracy would not hold and instead come crashing down. As we now know, those pillars, free and fair elections, withstood that assault, even as hundreds of protesters stormed the Capitol, desecrated its halls, many in search of members of Congress who had convened to do their constitutional duty of counting electoral college votes to certify then-president-elect Joe Biden as president, an otherwise procedural matter, all of it in an attempt to undo the results of the 2020 presidential election. While the mobs whose actions will live in infamy years after they are gone were not successful on January 6th, the chaotic day was a good reminder of just how fragile a thing democracy is. After all, democracy is only as strong as the integrity of those charged with upholding its tenets and the society that operates within the democratic framework. Something that has stuck out to me during the research phase in preparation for this season's podcast was how many experts of various professional backgrounds and disciplines, professors and historians, attorneys, economists, and activists, have compared the January 6th attack on our nation's capital to the 1898 Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat. Most obviously, it appears as if the perpetrators of the Wilmington insurrection, as well as those behind the January 6th insurrection, were all willing to scuttle the U.S. Constitution and the rule of law to see their preferred candidate take office or retain power. What you'll soon learn about the Wilmington insurrection is that its perpetrators did not believe the rule of law applied to them. In fact, they created an environment in which the rules and the laws that even they supported helped craft and past as elected officials, in fact, did not apply to them. If the past is prologue, perhaps it's not much of a surprise that the mobs of insurrectionists on January 6th believed the rule of law also did not apply to them. Either way, what happened on January 6th was not without precedent. More than 120 years prior, a highly successful and savagely brutal coup d'etat was carried out on American soil in Wilmington, North Carolina. And unlike January 6th, the coup in Wilmington was successful. It was more successful and had long-lasting ramifications beyond what even those who planned the operation could have imagined. As you're about to learn, the animus and dastardly measures that led to the bloody assault in Wilmington on November 10, 1898, had been simmering for decades. By February 1865, Union troops had occupied Wilmington, North Carolina. This was a turning point in the Civil War. Up until the last several months of the war, Fort Fisher kept North Carolina's port of Wilmington open to blockade runners responsible for supplying essential goods to Confederate armies inland. By 1865, this supply line was the last supply route open to Robert E. Lee's Army of Northern Virginia. The Union Army launched a massive assault on the Confederacy to capture Fort Fisher in an effort to take Wilmington. The U.S. Navy had discharged the heaviest naval bombardment in U.S. history upon Fort Fisher at the time. Doing so was key in the Union's efforts to cripple their enemies. This defeat helped seal the fate of the Confederacy. 
Several regiments of the United States Colored Troops, or USCT, were a part of those efforts, according to the North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Services. Formerly enslaved Blacks, as well as free Blacks from across the country, served under white officers, risking potential capture and execution. Men in the 37th Colored Regiment came from coastal North Carolina. The war took a devastating toll on Wilmington. Abject poverty and illness was rampant. In his book, Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898 and the Rise of White Supremacy, author and New York Times journalist David Zucchino writes, quote, The Wilmington Herald reported that despite a large force of darkies cleaning the streets, the city was an open sewer, end quote. Additionally, free Blacks could expect no special treatment. In order to restore some semblance of order, Union commanders turned to the people who knew how best to run local government there, former Confederate soldiers and white supremacists, some who had served in office before the war ended. Whites resisted attempts to grant equal rights to the formerly enslaved. Plantation owners under Union occupation and now without their slaves still exercised a significant amount of influence as they had before the war. As Zucchino writes, quote, the white men accustomed to running Wilmington were bitter and resentful after the war, end quote. Northern troops gave white police officers wide leeway to violently quell any attempts by African-Americans to assert what few rights they had. Quote, they preyed on freed slaves, whipping the men in public and beating the women with boards. In the countryside, former Confederate soldiers banded with white residents to form county militia companies that rampaged through the area, terrorizing Black families in their homes. Physical abuse of Blacks by whites, not unlike slavery times, was widespread and quite common, and all but condoned by police and even Union troops. Some Union soldiers shared former Confederate soldiers' hatred for Blacks. Many came from border states or former Confederate states and once owned slaves themselves. County militias raided Black homes and stole their property. Suffice to say, many whites returned from the war enraged. Quote, and more committed than ever to white supremacy, end quote. And that rage continued to brew over time. Things were not better on the state or national level. After the war, President Andrew Johnson, a native of Raleigh, clashed with Congress over Reconstruction. Congress wanted full citizenship and civil rights for freedmen. Johnson did not. Additionally, so-called Black Codes were adopted in states across the South including North Carolina, following the abolition of slavery in order to restrict Black progress. Secret societies were also formed to terrorize Blacks. Notably, 1868, the same year that the 14th Amendment was ratified, granting citizenship to all persons born or naturalized in the United States, including formerly enslaved people, and providing all citizens with equal protection under the law, that was the same year that the Ku Klux Klan was formed. The Klan would remain active for years to come, explains Dorothy Calloway Kirby, while being interviewed by Karen Ferguson in 1993 for Duke University's Behind the Veil Oral History Project. The interviews chronicle African-American life in the Jim Crow South. Galloway was born in Brunswick County, North Carolina in 1916 and later moved to Wilmington. This recording is courtesy of the Rubenstein Rare Book and Manuscript Library at Duke University.
There has been crosses, but I cannot remember right off any brutalities actually, but they have burned crosses. But as far as hanging people or doing it or setting in, or set, burning up areas or whatnot, I really can't remember any of that. But the Klan has always been here and I guess semi-active, so to speak. What do you what do you, what do you think that the the Wilmington how do you how do you think that the Wilmington riot of 1898 has affected the black community? Do so you think it still it had an effect on the black community here even when you were you know a young woman? And I can't. I don't believe that. I think that that is the people that actually remember that are dead now, and uh, the, the these I think now this generation is concentrating on what's happening or what has happened in their lifetime right. and going forward. But um, that, that I don't think um, now, because it happened, it had to do with the newspaper. Right. And uh, I think that that has sort of... Right, so um, it has, it, you don't think it will... Um, I, I don't think it's forgotten. Oh, you don't think it's forgotten? No, no, no not really. Right. But uh, not, I don't think it, what, you were going to ask me? Oh, I, I just was wondering if, if you thought that maybe, not not now so much as maybe in the, you know, 30s, 40s, mm -hmm. 50s, um, whether or not it, it affected how militant people felt they could be or, you know, was, mm -hmm. whether that continued to be sort of a, something that they remembered their parents telling them about or things like mm -hmm. that and sort of tempered how militant or what kinds of things black people felt they were able to do in Wilmington. I don't believe that that itself has anything to do with it. I, the ones that are militant, I think that they are not remembering that so much as they are remembering little things that happen in various spots, right. and it sort of you know causes them to sort of flare up. Right. In other words, maybe a policeman might um, deliberately kill a, a man somewhere and they think, well, he didn't have to do that, so, so, so forth and so on. I don't think that their mind goes all the way back to that particular riot. Okay. But I, may, I could be wrong, right. but somehow I think it has to do with more recent right. um, events. Yes. was 1868 the year the 14th Amendment was ratified and the year the Ku Klux Klan was formed, it was also the year Republicans controlled the state convention in North Carolina and drafted a more democratic state constitution. Republican William W. Holden was elected governor. The Reconstruction era, coupled with the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments, did begin to pay some dividends for African Americans in North Carolina. Between 1870 and 1876, 30 African American state legislators and one U.S. congressman, John A. Hyman, a former slave, were among the state's first black office holders. Unfortunately, this period of progress would not last. 
White supremacists, including the Ku Klux Klan, used intimidation, violence, and murder to regain control of state government by suppressing the Republican vote in 1870. In 1871, the Democrats, the party of white supremacy at the time, in the state legislature, impeached Governor Holden and removed the Republican from office, the first time a governor had been removed from office in American history. Despite a Republican gubernatorial win in 1872, by 1876, the Democratic Party established white supremacy in state government and used fraud to remain in power. The dawn of Jim Crow had arrived. This legacy was still palpable by the time white supremacists overthrew the biracial government in Wilmington, one of North Carolina's most progressive places and the state's largest city at the time, in 1898. Here to help break down the Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat is New York Times journalist and author of a number of books, including, as I mentioned earlier, Wilmington's Lie, The Murderous Coup of 1898, and The Rise of White Supremacy. David Zucchino. My name's David Zucchino. I'm a contributing writer for the New York Times covering Afghanistan and Iraq. Great. So interestingly enough, you're an international correspondent. How did you get involved or become interested in the Wilmington insurrection and, and the history surrounding that? It's not, I guess, in your daily wheelhouse, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I went to college and high school, even part of my high school, in North Carolina, and I had never heard of this. And I liked history, and I took a lot of history courses in college, but no professor ever mentioned it. It wasn't mentioned in any history book, and I didn't know anything about it until 1998, when there were uh, centennial commemorations in Wilmington. And I happened to read about it one day in a newspaper story, and I was just stunned, first of all, that I would not know about such an important event in not only North Carolina history, but in American history. And secondly, that something like this could happen in the United States. I mean, I was just shocked. So that really piqued my interest. But as you mentioned before, I've been a foreign correspondent and I've been away for many years and just kind of put it aside and thinking at some point, I really do want to write about this and and tell the whole story and really correct the historical record that was out there, the way this event was portrayed. So finally, three years ago, four years ago, I started writing and, and the book came out in 2020. Just as an aside, did you mostly use newspaper clippings, periodical references, accounts of descendants or archival recordings? All of that. Yeah. This was an unusual experience for me. I mean, I'm a newspaper reporter and I'm used to interviewing people or witnessing events. And I've written two other nonfiction books, but they're set in current time so I could interview people and witness the events. And this one, of course, is 120 years old. There's no one around who was there. And obviously I didn't witness it. So every single sentence in that book came from a piece of paper somewhere. So there was a whole lot of research in libraries. There were newspaper accounts, quite a few newspaper accounts, hundreds and hundreds of them, because this was a huge story at the time. There were a lot of letters, diaries, memoirs, and then talking to descendants. So all of this I put together and and created a narrative out of it. But it's just thousands of documents from all over the place, but mostly libraries. 
Yeah, I can tell it was very well researched. So awesome job on the book. So oppression, the threat of racially motivated violence, poverty, so on and so forth, were all part of the daily experiences of African-Americans in the post-Reconstruction era of both the South as well as other parts of the country. But Wilmington was an exception. It had an enterprising Black middle-class community, a pretty sizable Black electorate, and a biracial local government. Despite all of the racism and white supremacy, it was a thriving community. So what major factors in Wilmington's history, based on your research, are responsible for this dynamic? And what made Wilmington a pretty unique place to live for both Blacks and whites uh, during that time? Yeah, Wilmington really was an outlier among Southern cities at the time. First of all, it had a Black majority. It was 56% Black at a time when I don't know of any other major Southern city that had more than 50% Black population. So that was uh, unusual in and of itself. But what created conditions to attract many freed enslaved people after the Civil War was was jobs. That's what drew both whites and blacks to Wilmington. It was the, first of all, it was the biggest city in North Carolina at the time. And it had a major port, one of the biggest ports in the world, but had tons and tons of jobs and unskilled jobs as well as skilled jobs. There was also the naval stores industry in, in the Cape Fear a region around Wilmington, and that was turpentine, tar, and pitch. That was a huge source of employment. It was also a railroad terminal, so there were major rail lines coming in there, and there were lots of unskilled jobs on the railroad. So after the Civil War, a lot of Black men just migrated to Wilmington because there were jobs there. Whites also migrated there as well. The way it turned out for employers that Black men were willing to work for less because of the racism at the time constitutionally, black men, constitutional rights that were supposedly equal to those of whites, but in practice, they weren't enforced at all, particularly in the South. So employers could take advantage of black workers and pay them less and work them harder. And as it turned out later, many white employers preferred black labor because they were easier to control than the whites and and they worked harder and they could pay them less. But over time, a middle class developed in Wilmington of merchants and people who owned restaurants and barbershops. There was also a really dynamic professional class of black men who were educated at segregated black universities at the time. There were doctors and lawyers and, and school teachers, really a thriving, thriving middle class and professional class. Again, it was 56% Black. And after the Republican Party took control of Wilmington and the North Carolina legislature, a lot of jobs opened up in appointed positions in Wilmington, and Black men came to fill those jobs, you know, in the police department, in politics, and in the courts. Yeah. And since you mentioned opportunity, that was part of what was described back then by uh, white supremacists and others as the Negro problem. Right. So would you mind briefly explaining how the Negro problem overshadowed politics in Wilmington and throughout North Carolina during this time period and led to a rise in white supremacist activity, you know, keeping in mind that there was a price to pay for Black progress and advancement? Yes, the white supremacists at the time were used to running North Carolina and used to running uh, Wilmington, and they viewed this black empowerment as an existential threat to white supremacy, and and in a way it really was. The so-called fusion movement 
came about in the early um, 1890s, and it basically teamed up poor white farmers of the Populist Party who had voted for the Democrats, who were the party of white supremacy at the time, but became disillusioned with Democrats because they perceived them as favoring big railroad and bank and, and, and lawyer interests and not really taking uh cognizance of the the needs of white farmers. They wanted to have their, their children educated and they wanted support for uh, crop prices and they weren't getting it. So they migrated to the Republican Party, which was the party of Lincoln at the time and was more progressive than the Democratic Party. And black men who were given the vote in 1868 in North Carolina migrated to the Republican Party and the Populist Party joined with them to create what was known then as fusion and the, the fusionists took over the state legislature and city government in Wilmington for the first time in many, many years. And this just enraged the white supremacists. And so they came up with a plan to really take it down and remove it, particularly focusing on the government in Wilmington. What really irked the white supremacists was, first of all, 10 of the 26 police officers were black and they had the power to arrest white men, even though the white police chief asked them, please don't arrest white men, let the white officers arrest white men. There were also black magistrates and that enraged white supremacists because they could deliberate in cases uh, involving white defendants. There were also black postal workers who delivered mail to white homes at a time when white women were alone at home. And this just terrified the white supremacists because they told white voters at the time that, you know, black men were, they used the term black beast rapists and really, really played on white fears that black men would attack white women, even though there was no rape epidemic, as the white supremacists called it during that period. So with all these black men in positions of, of power and influence, the white supremacy campaign in the summer of 1898 came up with a plan to overthrow the government, the multiracial government in Wilmington. And, and their larger objectives were to prevent black men from ever voting again and from ever holding public office again. And that led to the violence that we saw in November of uh, 1898 when white men with guns coursed through the streets, almost 2,000 of them, and murdered at least 60 black men and overthrew the government. You mentioned uh, the biracial government, black mm -hmm. magistrates and police officers. Who were some of the more prominent uh, black and white elected officials who came to power in Wilmington as a result of that fusion wave of politics and, you know, ultimately attracted the ire of the white supremacists? Yeah, I mean, in addition to three of the 10 city aldermen were black men, and, and I mentioned the magistrates and the postal carriers and the police officer, there were also uh, black men in appointed positions, such as the county treasurer and the county jailer and others. More importantly, the most significant leaders of the black community weren't elected officials. They were private people, but one of them uh, was Alex Manley, who was the publisher of the Black Readership Daily. It was the only black daily in North Carolina at the time. And he was extremely outspoken and really demanded of the white establishment that black men be awarded or be given the rights that were guaranteed to them under the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, which, of course, uh, they were completely denied by the white power structure. But Manley really pounded on this theme and also exposed the white supremacists, their, their so-called black beast rapists. This is a term they used to terrify white voters into voting for the Democratic Party was, was false. And he actually wrote an editorial 
that enraged uh, white supremacists because he said that many of the black men who were lynched for supposedly raping white women were in fact their consensual lovers. And he also pointed out that for generations, white men had been raping black women with impunity. And of course, this just enraged the white supremacists. Another leader was uh, William Henderson. He was a prominent lawyer who really, again, like Alex Manley, stood up for black rights and black empowerment. And it got him almost killed and got him banished, formally banished from the city and run, literally run out of town on a rail. They put him on a train and told him to never come back. And he never did. There was also a Reverend William Kirk, who was an outspoken religious leader and, and preached from the pulpit, uh, preached black advancement and black empowerment. He too was run out of town, but he left some very good description, uh, written description of what had happened that day. So those are just a few examples of black men who stood up and spoke the truth and made themselves targets and were definitely punished in one way or the other. Alex Manley was almost lynched and he escaped and Reverend Kirk escaped as well, but they were both under threat of lynching. But again, just their very presence and the fact that black men were in positions of authority and power just wasn't going to be tolerated by the white supremacists. And they came up with a coup, which they called a race right, was actually a, a white supremacist coup in uh, November of 1898. And it's, I guess, important to mention that not all of the Black people in Wilmington sided with Manley mm-hmm. regarding his editorial. Some were what we would call probably accommodationists mm-hmm. at the time and really thought that it was better to be prudent and discreet about their feelings and not rock the boat, so to speak. Right. And some of the Black people also blamed Manly for having a large role in the insurrection. Absolutely. And, and sort of the leader of the accommodation movement was John Dancy. And he was the custom collector, and that was an appointed job, a job appointed by the Republican president, and he made more than the white governor. So he had a lot to lose. He had a a really high-paying job and a lot of influence. And he, as you mentioned, really counseled, listen, Black people, we need to keep our heads down. It's not so bad here. You know, we have jobs, everything segregated, but we can sort of have our own community and live our own lives. Let's not antagonize these white people. They're dangerous. They're armed. We just need to keep quiet, keep our heads down and and go to work and everything will be fine. And in fact, he obviously was not run out of town, partially because he was a federal employee and the white supremacists did not want to make it possible for the federal government to have an excuse to send in troops to restore order and to restore black voting rights. So they left him alone. And in fact, he came back after the coup and and reclaimed his job as the customs collector. Wow. (laughs) So could you just describe the architects, the major players behind the white supremacist campaign that led to the Wilmington insurrection of 1898? Yeah, the the campaign was very interesting. First of all, that was the word they used. They called it the white supremacy campaign, and they even published a booklet for white voters that explained the tenets of white supremacy and, and the supposed inferiority of black men. One of the main leaders was Josephus Daniels. He was the publisher of the News and Observer in Raleigh, which was the biggest and most influential paper in the state. And he basically mounted a a disinformation and a propaganda campaign in the summer of 1898 that was aimed at convincing white voters that they had to vote for the white supremacist Democratic Party because their very way of life was at stake. Daniels was the one who really popularized the term the black beast rapist, and he would print phony stories about black men supposedly raping white women who just make it up. 
He would also published editorial cartoons because 25% of the population was illiterate. So he came up with the idea of publishing cartoons that depicted black men as as beasts and animals and as uh, you know dangerous rapists. And it was extremely effective. Also, white supremacist newspapers, I mean, almost all white-run papers in North Carolina, the so-called establishment papers, were run by white supremacists. And they all spread the same propaganda campaign, which was very effective in terrifying white voters and actually inciting them to violence against black men. Another leader of the white supremacy campaign was a man named Furnifold Simmons. He was chairman of the Democratic Party. And he worked closely with Josephus Daniels to really promote this idea that black men were incompetent, corrupt, and incapable of voting intelligently. And that's the actual phrase they used, and incapable of serving in public office and had to be removed. And his campaign really convinced a lot of white voters that that was true and that their way of life was was under threat by these dangerous black men. In Wilmington itself, probably the most prominent leader of the white supremacy campaign was a lawyer named Roundtree, and he organized uh, white supremacy clubs that were actually clubs, white unions, they called them, and he helped organize the militia of the white supremacy movement, which were vigilantes known as red shirts, whose basically job that summer and fall was to ride through the Cape Fear countryside and break into black homes at night and pull out black men and whip them and beat them and threaten them that if they dared register to vote, they would come back and kill them. And that was very, very effective in tamping down and terrifying black men so that they didn't vote. The red shirts also went out on election day in November of 1898 and beat and threatened and intimidated black men to keep them from voting. So again, this was a planned insurrection, a planned coup. It wasn't a spontaneous outburst of white rage. It was calculated, it was planned over a period of month and carried out very efficiently with the help of all these hundreds and hundreds of armed white men. In addition to the red shirts, the white supremacists had two state militias in Wilmington under their command. One was the Wilmington Light Infantry, the other was the Naval Reserves. And these were the National Guard of the day, and they were supposed to report to the Republican governor in Raleigh, but in fact, they were commanded and made up entirely by white supremacists, and they were bought out on the day of the coup with machine guns that were bought by the white merchants and turned on the black population during the day of the coup. And again, I mentioned that at least 60 black men were murdered that day. Right. And we also know that there were Black men who were drafted to serve in the war. They never got to serve, but they were at a base miles away, Mm -hmm. uh, camp miles away, and told they couldn't return back to Wilmington. And so that also depleted the number of, of people who were able to defend the Black community in Wilmington during the insurrection. Yeah, that militia situation was really surprising to me when I was doing my research. These two white militias were called up for duty in the Spanish-American War in the summer of uh, 1898. And so they were in federal service. They were called up. They never got to the war. They went to a training base as well. But the leaders of the white supremacy campaign made sure that they were back in Wilmington 
before the day of the coup so that they could be called out, you know, and unleashed against the black population. At the same time, as you mentioned, there were two so-called colored units of black men who were also called up for the Spanish-American War. And they were sent, as you mentioned, to a base. It was actually in Georgia. It was a training base. And the white supremacist leaders of Wilmington made sure that they stayed there and that they were there on the day of the coup so that they wouldn't be in town to help protect the uh, black population. And essentially, the black population was undefended. Uh, For one thing, the white gun merchants in Wilmington would not sell to black men. At the same time, they organized this arming campaign where they sold out all of their shotguns and rifles and ammunition and had to actually telegraph to Richmond and Baltimore for them to send more weapons. But over the summer, the white population was heavily armed. And at the same time, the black population had very few weapons. All they had was probably some old shotguns and and a few weapons that the so-called colored brigades had from the Civil War. This would have been the sons and and nephews of of the men who had served in the Civil War, but they were essentially undefended. And when the, the white men came out, the red shirts and the vigilantes, plus the two militias, they were just overwhelmed and absolutely defenseless, which explains how they were so easily able to murder more than 60 black men with impunity. And by the way, no one was ever charged or arrested, much less convicted for their roles in in the coup and, and in those 60 murders. episode, we'll continue to explore the 1898 Wilmington insurrection and coup d'etat, as well as the impact it had on other communities throughout North Carolina. For all you listeners, do me a solid and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or on your favorite podcast platform. That simple act by you really helps us broaden our reach and get this information out to all who want to learn about it. I appreciate you. And as I mentioned in the last episode, if you're interested in learning about other history podcasts, I recommend Bohemian, which is a podcast about the history and culture of Czechia, a country that also experienced a coup d'etat in 1948, similar to Wilmington, North Carolina.
about it, do I'll die. I don't talk about it. About it, do I'll cry. Don't talk about it. About it, do I'll die.